this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Episode 12, our review of the ICER draft evidence report on resmedarome and abutacolic acid. And from The Vault, we have conversation 16.1 from Season 3, in which Chris Estes, who was then the lead modeler for the CDA Foundation, joined Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, guest Alina Allen, and me to discuss some of the challenges in building a model for a disease with a long progression path and measurable levels of spontaneous regression. It's an issue that arose during the ICER discussion, but with a very different spin, so you'll probably want to listen to all of this to get a feel for how it hangs together. I start this conversation by describing my reaction to the first paragraph of this document as the equivalent of a roller coaster that goes immediately from zero to 60. It works better in the episode where I've got more time to explain. But my point was the first two sentences of the executive summary tell you right away that ICER is underestimating the disease population severely. The numbers they use for NAFLD in the first sentence are outdated and even somewhat conservative for when they were published. And the Nash estimate of 1.5 to 6.5% in the second sentence is too broad and, again, probably low even in its highest estimate. Louise Campbell and Jeff McIntyre make comments supporting the idea that the data is conservative and probably out of date, with Jeff eventually noting that the 2010 to 2016 data is not only outdated, but generationally inaccurate and, um, by the way, doesn't account for COVID. This leads Louise to note that the UK Biobank data has demonstrated that NAFLD is a risk factor for response to COVID in terms of hospitalization and death, a point this podcast has made before, but should figure into the cost assessment of NAFLD, which it does not appear to. The rest of the discussion revolves around the definitions of which patients are at risk, where panelists suggest that the document manages to be limiting and unclear at the same time, and environmental cofactors as identified by Veronica Miller, which is where this conversation ends and the next one will begin. While ICER is a private organization, its recommendations carry weight with those assessing the value and pricing of new medications. This report will leave a significant footprint in commercial space. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. I want to switch my metaphors from elephants to roller coasters for a minute, okay? Have you, have you ever been on one of these zero propulsion roller coasters? Well, a typical roller coaster, right? You crank your way up to the top. You know where you get to the top. You get to the top. It turns around and goes down, right? But there are roller coasters. Two that come to mind in Orlando are the Aerosmith ride at, at Disney and the Hulk ride at Universal, where you're sitting there and you just take off, right? Really fast. In fact, in Hulk, you take off while you're going up. So when you hit the top and you're going down, you're corkscrewing. You don't even know where the ground is. It's fantastic when it's good. When it's not good, it's a real problem. So I read the first two sentences of this executive summary, and I just went, whoa. An estimated 24% of adults in the United States have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Whose estimate is that now? Don't tell me whose estimate was 10 years ago. This is a pandemic. It's a growing disease, right? Stevens, two studies out of San Antonio, progressively said 37%. I haven't heard anybody who works in this area say less than 30 in five years. So that was problem number one. And then second sentence, estimated prevalence of NASH in the adult population is between one and a half and six and a half percent. Forget the idea that six and a half is probably low. Think about the implication of a 4x range and what are we looking at? How casual can we be about 1.5% or how aggressive can we be because it's not going to cost us very much? As a forecaster, I took a look at those numbers, two sentences in, and I said, I respect why these folks have to be so careful. And I respect how, why that gets you to conservative numbers and broad ranges, but I just feel like I don't even know where the ground is. And that was before I started reading about the work. I hate to be overly vivid. I respect what they do. I know how hard this is to do right, but whoa, from where I sit, that was a hell of a start. I, I don't know how any of you feel about that. Louise can 
symbol. Just on that, I think there was a comment in that section that compared it to hepatitis C and you could sense the fear in the comment about how expensive this could be. So I wonder whether that was part and parcel of that. But yeah, there were a couple of wow moments in the document for those particular reasons. Jeff McIntyre. Yeah, Roger, you make the comment there. It does speak to the overall kind of conservative nature of the document that they do. I mean, throughout the document about conservative in terms of its impact, conservative in terms of how they do the qualities for quality of life years for good or bad of uh, its consideration by payers in terms of progression, in terms of risk, in terms of, you know, all these things. That would be an underlying theme to this as well, is that the conservative approach to this, the, the small c conservative approach to this, is that it just doesn't really match up with what we understand the risk of uh, fatty liver disease and the risk to uh, liver and metabolic health going on these days. But do you think that was because of the documents used? There were only, there was a, this was a 105-page document. There were 66 references, only one reference saying it was non-progressive. I've never read that document, so I will go and find that. But there was, given how many progressive documents we do know. But all of the guidelines, like NICE 2016, ASL 2016, all of the guidelines were before the real explosion in clinical trials, in the evidence we're now generating, in the strength of diagnostics with MAST and FAST. And so we're, we're trying to compare two drugs, apples and pears, in one single document with basis of documentation of disease levels that was based in 2016, which would have been published in 2016, which was basically written around from data from 2010. And we're now in 2023. Do you think this is the problem of the speed of NAFLA NASH growth against the speed of the way we can collect and implement data change? Yeah, I think that's very astute. Again, owing to Hannah's comments about Gen X and millennials, and the drastic rise in obesity. And even as to call out our previous episode where we were talking about uh, nutrition guidelines, about how they really only apply to healthy folks. And you look at the population and really only truly in the American population, only 12 to 15 percent of the population is metabolically healthy. You know, when you're talking about 2010, even 2016 sort of data for obesity, for lifestyle, quote unquote, lifestyle sort of disease, that changes drastically over generations as well as over decades. There's so many things that can impact that. And I would dare say that even coming out of the COVID pandemic, that those numbers would be even yet higher and have led to habits and to a certain clinical state of the disease that absolutely we we just we couldn't have imagined in 2010. I want to agree with that. I want to amplify a little bit. Uh, I mentioned last week the uh, search study in diabetics that shows the rate at which adolescents were developing type 2 diabetes from 2000 to 2018 or 2019. A friend of mine who's basically spent his life doing this in public health and then in philanthropy was sharing with me numbers. He's sending me articles I've not seen yet. But the idea is that the entire growth in in obesity and metabolic tends to lie somewhere between 80 and 400% of the U.S. poverty level, which lines up neatly with a place where people have enough money to buy food, but not enough money to buy good food. And we're giving them increasing options for bad food. And that band is growing over time because minimum wage and social benefits don't keep up with inflation or economic growth or opportunities available. So you layer the pandemic on top of that. And you You've got to believe that if anything, the curve is kicking up from where it was from 20 to 2000 to 2018. And then, Louise, I think you're dead on because if you're talking about rates that grow by a fixed percentage a year, right, we know that over time interest compounds or percentages compound. So 5% a year for 10 years is a lot 
is not near as bad as five percent a year for twenty years, and if it's seven percent in the last five of those years, it get so your point is exactly right, and that we probably need to think about how do we bring that kind of recognition into the estimates that we're doing right now. Yeah, I think you're right. The, way, the one thing I'd say about that, but maybe that is the opportunity for going back, is the fact of there is more and more data now produced about the effect of Nafold and Nash on the pandemic mortality. If this was a non-progressive disease, the use of the information as to how it impacted, so we have the UK Biobank, it tripled the rate of mortality if your liver fat was over 10%. And that was a prospective study of people who'd already been tested who went on to get COVID. They've now released their long COVID report that again highlights liver fat. So I know we're bringing ISA into the 2023's data, but that's the comeback is that if this was not progressive, even if it wasn't progressive, it had a huge effect on those core mobile conditions in the pandemic and the cost of that. And there will be future. We had three warnings, SARS, MARS and H1M1 that picked the same populations. We can now look at prevention rather than cure. So maybe that that's an opportunity. If you were to grant in this theoretical world that NAF than Nash were not progressive. If we, we run on that sort of hypothetical position here, which kind of negates the need for a lot of the conversations we've had about endpoints and resolution and stuff, our stopping progression, it seems to me that one of the things that the report does make clear, however, is that NAFLD and NASH patients are at risk. And I think from a pricing standpoint, from what this document is kind of geared at, that that's almost a, you, you have to engage that distinction very narrowly, that to have have a patient that is at risk for progression versus a patient that is in a disease state that does progress, the difference that that makes to a patient is so minimal. You know, if I have something and I'm suddenly at risk for something, I know with every cigarette I have, I'm more at risk for lung cancer, then I want that to be treated through whatever means necessary to be able to address that. And it just seems to be kind of this this false dichotomy that has been set up in the paper. Interesting. Uh, let me turn back to Jorn and Veronica since we've been in a kind of a slightly different zone for the last 20, 25 minutes. Any reactions on whatever level to what we've been saying about uh, progression and the uh, statistics around the disease and all that? Jörn Schattenberg. Well, I think it's important to revisit again which target population we're talking about here. So this is uh, two phase three trials evaluating F2, F3 histologically confirmed NASH at change of histology over the study duration of 18 months, which is an intermediate analysis. So it's not NAFLD in general. And I think so for that reason, we need to be very clear that this is an at-risk liver disease population that progresses. And again, that's why I'm a little struck by the statements as we've discussed them here. The report does not discuss the whole spectrum of the disease with NAFLD or NAFL as it is so highly prevalent, specifically for those patients that are in, in, enrolled in the clinical trials. And to abstract that, again, I'm not a health economist or it feels difficult to extrapolate that to the general population where we don't have all that information. But the one thing I'd like to say that for sure we'll need to apply a set of biomarkers to identify the subgroup of patients that were most likely to be responsive to these interventions for them to be used cost-effective, uh, if, if that makes sense. So, you know, think, thinking back of, of the report, I'm thinking who was enrolled in the clinical trials, where's the evidence that there is a subgroup of patients benefiting from that, and how can I identify them moving forward outside of clinical trials? I, I think that's the challenge here. Veronica Miller. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Jörn. Two things I wanted to kind of go back on what Luis was talking 
talking and, and Jeff were talking about before, and that is, or you actually, Roger, too, in terms of the population that's been hit at a pandemic, etc. So the poor people, right, that live in areas where there's a lot of unhealthy eating, etc. But the other part of this, too, is that those are also very often the same people that are exposed to all kinds of environmental toxins and etc., which I think also is because when we're looking at the liver, you know, anything that can affect the liver, such as environmental toxins, is going to play into this as well. So it's not just the unhealthy eating, etc. It's also the environment that people live in. And thus really getting to a good treatment is really paramount. And now back to Roger. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's second annual Innovations in Naffold Care Conference with co-hosts Jorn Schottenberg, who's a regular here, as you know, and Jeff Lazarus, who's not. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.